Welcome to Emory Innovators, a series of conversations between the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, and Emory alumni who are innovation leaders or entrepreneurs, or have taken innovative approaches to designing their careers and disrupting their industries. Thanks for joining us today on Emory Innovators, showcasing conversations with Emory faculty, staff, and alumni who work in innovation and entrepreneurship or have taken innovative approaches to designing their careers and disrupting their industries. Today, it's our pleasure to welcome alumnus Sashish Mistry. He is co-founder and managing partner of BLH Venture Partners, a private investment firm specializing in early stage companies. His operating experience includes leadership roles with high growth companies within information security, SAS, and e-commerce. In addition to his current role at BLH, Mystery was founder and CEO of Control Freak, an innovative lifestyle brand in the video game market that was acquired in 2020. He has advised early stage companies across the state through Georgia Tech's Advanced Technology Development Center, which you may know as ATDC, and is also active in community organizations through current and prior board positions with Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Venture Atlanta, where he is co-founder, and the Atlanta CEO Council, as well as through extensive committee work with local technology organizations. He holds a BA in religion from Emory University. So Ashish, thanks so much for joining us today for Emory Innovators. Great, thanks, glad to be here with you guys. So today we'll dig into your experience with startups and your current role as managing partner of BLH Venture Partners, but I'd like to start this innovation journey much earlier. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about your time at Emory, sort of what brought you to the College of Arts and Sciences, and how did your studies in religion prepare you for professional endeavor beyond university? Yeah, um, well, it's, it's somewhat of a circuitous path in the sense of, or path in the sense that, um, you know, I got to Emory from Florida where I grew up, um, and, you know, it was only one of two schools I applied to, so it was my, mm. my primary. I'd done the summer scholars program as a junior in high school. And, uh, you know, it was where I wanted to be. Otherwise, I was, I was going to be stuck in Florida. And a, a, I'm a Gator fan, but I would have been a Gator by, uh, by degree as well. Uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, but, you know, listen, I think Emory, um, Emory showed me what, uh, what was possible in a lot of ways. Um, you know, never, I'd never taken classes in that same manner where, it, you know, it was really up to you to motivate yourself to get up and mm -hmm. get to class. Um, and, and really explore a lot of what the university brought to you in terms of resources. So in terms of, you know, things like anthropology, taking classes with Brad Shore and folks like that, that, you know, I can remember back. Um, it was also leadership things there that, um, that I thought you know, really stuck out to me. It was, uh, I, I did freshman seminar um, and then I was a, uh, uh, forget what the, uh, the counselor is called now, but um, you know, I was on student programming council. And so I had the ability to sort of you know, uh, take a taste of a bunch of things that were there and uh, you know, including sort of the actual academics piece of it. And so the religion piece comes into play really uh, because uh, there was the intent by some folks in my family that, that being a doctor would be a great idea. They'd seen sort of the mm -hmm. trials and tribulations of, of starting up, up, up businesses uh, both in Africa, in, in the UK, where I was born, and then again in America. So they they were in the startup world mm. without really calling it that, um, just by 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 necessity, not by choice. Um, and mm. you know, medicine seemed to be a more stable profession. Um, but uh, but apparently, you can't become a doctor if you fail organic chemistry. Uh, <laughs> and, so, um, and so, as a result of of that kind of moment. Um, or that function, um, I really sort of had to re rethink what I needed, wanted to do. And uh, the, the places where I had credits that were gonna lead me down a path to be able to graduate, uh, lent themselves to religion. And, um, and you know, and I, I, you know, we not overly religious, I actually feel like I became less religious as a function of studying religion. Um, it, it allowed you to sort of explore the world in different ways and understand that there was a lot more commonality to things that, uh, that we all sort of as individuals have, no matter where you're from, um, that, and, and there's a lot about relationship building. And so uh, that's that's the reason religion came into the full, long story, but. 
that's that. Um, it, it's an interesting story, just the same. I'll say on a personal note, um, you know, I ended up pursuing a PhD and uh, as my wife's family loves, loves to say, um, when we told you to marry a doctor, that is not what we meant. Yeah. So, uh, you know, sometimes innovation starts with, uh, with doctor stories that have kind of gone uh, a little askew. But um, I'm curious uh, about this path, this indirect and circuitous path. It's a, something we hear often from entrepreneurs that uh, the path is not direct that sometimes it starts with uh, sort of a, a fumble or a, an obstacle of some sort. In your case, you mentioned the organic chemistry piece. Um, and yet, one thing that seems to be a, a uniting uh, theme is that ultimately these big questions start to come into focus. And you spoke about it as there's a commonality to a lot of things. Um, I'm wondering if you've encountered a lot of other humanities, people with a humanities background for that reason, or a religion background, or fields that would train people to see these basic human needs, these commonalities of the human existence. Yeah. And has entrepreneurship proven to be a, a, a mode for addressing those for you? Yeah, it actually, you know, as it, it, you ask the question, and I sort of reflect on it a bit, I think you know, some of, some of the best people I've worked with have really had this interdisciplinary education that hasn't been so tunnel focused um, in terms of, I've got this one thing I do, and it's, it's a breadth of, of education and, and really sort of um, less education, but more so um, observation, the things that they think about, you know, read, you know, read who they speak with, who they touch, um, that allows them to be a pretty broad thinker. And then they, they, they tend to have a trade of some sort, right? They end up being good at a thing and which leads them down the path of maybe the, the area of where they might focus their entrepreneurship. But overall, um, the breadth of their thinking and their ability to tackle a problem without a, you know, with, with, you know, with having um, a, a broader view or a lens of, of how the problem might exist leads them down to, to an answer to a problem that might, might end up becoming a business or a, a scalable opportunity. Um, and so, so I think that to answer your question uh, succinctly, um, I just think it's, it's, it's breadth of vision and ability to see things that, that allows uh, one with a um, kind of non-traditional education to sort of see it from the entrepreneurship side. That's interesting. Uh, you, the year after you graduated from Emory, you undertook your first entrepreneurial role as co-founder of Vertex, uh, Vertex Networks. And can you tell us more about Vertex, but also this experience of jumping straight into founding and building your own company? Um, yep. What did those early years look like? What was the day-to-day -day of your role? I believe it was as vice president of marketing and sales. Yep, yep, yep. So it's easy to give yourself a title when you're the founder of a company. So it was a lot fancier than any of the... Uh, um, the experience I had in actually being a vice president of anything. Uh, but, you know, we, um, we were at Emory. And so one of my, you know, the co-founder of my company, um, you know, was, a, was another Emory. There were two other Emory students and one was in my year. Um, you know, they were working off of Howell Mill or House of Mill Road um, doing sort of IT services work on campus um, for, you know, like the Department of Dermatology and things that were disconnected from the main campus network. Um, and I was sitting doing an internship and sort of just finished and graduated and gotten a job sort of in the sports marketing world. And it was, it just wasn't a fit for me. And so um, what I realized quickly was, is that, you know, this is not a fit. I need to figure out what I wanted to do. And it was also an interesting time, right? So if you think about what's happening in the market right now, where, you know, valuations and business formation are at all time highs and there's venture capital. Um, you know, truckloads of it just being backed up to companies. Well, this is the dawn of the internet and sort of probably the application side of it. And in that small business that I was working in, the IT network was going down. And I was talking to these guys that were um, friends of mine saying, hey, can you fix this network? It's like, well, it doesn't scale if you've got to come out on a Thursday to fix a computer that's down on a Monday, but I've got to be billing hours to, you know, Bell South or AT&T at the uh, Bell South at that time. So I'm not billing hours, computer network's down. How do you solve this issue remotely? And they're like, well, large companies have software and uh, 
they can typically remotely manage and monitor these networks, but small companies can't afford this stuff because that software costs, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. And um, it's available from IBM or from um, Computer Associates back then or from HP. And so I was like, well, if I could figure out how to get that software, can we load it up onto servers, which at that point in time, 250 terabytes, uh, to actually a terabyte of storage was $250,000, which you can now get for $250 at Sam's. And so, um, you know, so you be perspective. We basically, you know, said, listen, we want to build a network and then have companies subscribe to a network just like they would telephony. You didn't have, an, uh, you didn't have a phone guy running around your office uh, fixing handsets. It just worked. And uh, that's when we embarked upon Vertex Networks. And, you know, that was the company that we started and ultimately um, built into a nice recurring revenue business. So it was sort of SaaS or, or software as a service or, or uh, in managed services before that stuff was really even um, buzzworthy. And so we'd started that business in 98, launched it and made it through most of the dot-com bubble until we, uh, we ended up merging that company with LeapFrog Services, which still around the corner for memory, um, you know, sign off of 85 with the green frog. That's uh, my, my co-founder is still the CTO of that business going on, you know, since 23 years. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah that's uh, that's a big connection. And it's interesting. I'm curious. One of the things we often uh, talk about here is sort of this moment of transition because we routinely have students in attendance at these talks and they're kind of curious about the moment of, of transitioning from academic endeavor to professional endeavor. Um, and I'm wondering if you could reflect a bit on the strengths you had already developed as a person and a student uh, that you were able to leverage in those early days, but also the mindsets and additional skills you had to develop uh, right away in order to successfully grow and eventually exit Vertex. Yeah. So, so I think there was three things I wrote down on a piece of paper, which, which I can, I think I still have a piece of paper that I've held on to, which were, you know, listen, I didn't know a whole lot. The experience I had in marketing and sales was a little bit of, all right, that feels right. That that's how you should approach a customer or that's how we should message something. Um, but the other parts of it were use the network, which was, Hey, there's three parts to this that I needed to figure out was the technology community. So if we needed to, hire technologists or you know technicians or whomever it was i should probably network into that community um and so that was one um understanding the lay of the atlanta business landscape was the other so hey this business is going to require vertex if we, we want customers they're not just going to be all it companies they're going to be law firms and accounting firms so building a broader network that way and I said, well, what do I have? What else do I have that's that, that I don't have to work that hard for? I was like, well, the Indian community. Um, being of Indian descent, I should be able to, to sort of show up there and not be the fish out of water. And I was able to use those three things and you know, um, is is a is a jumping off point. So um, and there were organizations that were just starting off that were you know really helpful. So the Thai, which is basically, uh, it was at that point in time, a, an Indian focused entrepreneurs organization was just getting kicked off. Um, Dr. Chef from the B school was, I emailed him directly and he had connected me with those guys. And I showed up there and met the founders of that organization who had then subsequently led me on to um, other, other, uh, other resources. Um, it was where I got my first $250,000 investment. It was also how I met the uh, the CTO of Computer Associates, who allowed us to use the software that managed those large networks for free, uh, and so that networking really, you know, opening up those doors um, allowed me to launch the business and and raise the initial capital for me, and that was all. You know, it wasn't skill based in terms of oh, uh, I I knew how to I couldn't tell you a router from a switch at that point in time, but uh, it was able to articulate the business problem and. Um, that we were young and hungry and, and we were going to get after it. And so that was really what was, uh, what was probably most important at that point in time. So uh, I hear a couple of themes there that I think aren't uncommon in an entrepreneur's journey. One is a real focus on customer. You have to know your end user. You need to know their job to be done. 
Um, another is really building strong connections to a particular ecosystem. In this case, both the, the technical ecosystem you were working within, and also it sounds like the sort of market ecosystem that you were going into, um, understanding where you're coming from and what uh, communities and, and uh, resources you already have at your disposal. And then this idea of, of defining a clear problem and being hungry and getting after it. I think these are some common themes, but I'll say there's something else about your journey that strikes me as very uncommon. Uh, which is that we see a lot of ambitious students graduate and take on a role or two in large organizations to get a kind of better understanding of the business world, then transition to entrepreneurship. And I believe you sort of took the opposite path because you launched Vertex right after college. Yep. And then you stepped into a role with Lock Air Defense as Director of Marketing and Business Development. So there's somewhere that maybe your title paid off, right? Maybe yep. it opened the door. Could you tell us more about that pathway and, and why that proved to be the right progression for you? Yeah, yeah. And, and again, um, you know, the, the air defense um, piece of it really, um, it, it dovetails from the Vertex piece. So uh, one of, you know, we we had raised uh, you know a bit of capital from local angels. Um, uh, Jay Chaudhry, who's you know now the chairman CEO of Zscaler, had had by that time was starting his second business. So you know again think the late 90s, the internet was just beginning. You had to put infrastructure in place. Uh, Jay's first company, Secure IT, was really a you're building they're selling boxes. And so as the internet was getting wired, they were putting routers and switches and, and, and security devices in place so that we could all start to communicate um, fluidly. Um, the second company was in the security space again, and Jay was also the, the chairman of Vertex. And so um, once we merged Vertex into Leapfrog, um, the opportunity arose at Air Defense, whereby he said, hey, why don't you join me at Air Defense? And again, that was a startup. So there was you know probably four or five people there. I was first or second non-technical employee. And so I was brought in really to say, you know, hey, I'm going to sit outside your door and be in boot camp. And so Jay, Jay is a master of marketing and, and understanding markets. And so um, that's showcased by, you know, what he's done with Zscaler, which is like a $40 billion market cap at this point. Um, he, he could see things and he had the experience and, you know, what we lacked in our, in, in, in sort of our youth at Vertex, I was able to glean from having him and then others around me that um, had some more experience. And I was just, you know, I was, I was there to execute and suck up as much as I could. And from those that were experienced and take those elements and then, you know, really sort of, um, you know, inculcate them into, into my growth. And so, you know, I learned everything from wiring the website to Salesforce to, you know, to helping to write white papers, to get them marketed and distributed to calling leads to, going out in the field to meet customers to then going and you know, running channels in Europe and Asia um, only to come back and say, you know what, it's my turn to go do my thing again. And so that experience was really, um, while the company had grown, um, I came back and there was, you know, probably 150 people, which, you know, to me is a large company, um, obviously not to the, the broader market, but it, it was just where, it was just where I, I tap out. And so I'm a, you know, at that point in time, I realized that I'm an early stage guy, and that's what I really enjoy was the, the initial formation and through the, the early scale. And then, you know, once I've done that, then there's, there's better people that are suited to, to take on those roles that, that our generalists were, were fulfilling. I mean, that's an interesting thing to learn about yourself because there are very different skill sets. People think of entrepreneurship as sort of a unified thing, but in fact, being very early stage is often about problem definition and vision for establishing a solution. And whereas uh, then at a certain point, it tips to strategy around uh, growth and scaling. And often those are different skill sets that attract different people. I'm wondering as a side note, if in addition, you shared some of the, the experience that you got working at Locke with Jay, but I'm wondering if you could share maybe a few uh, nuggets of wisdom that you gleaned from watching him in action or from that time that you spent there. Yeah, so I'd say a couple of things. Um, one, you know, it was you still sort of say, but Saturday was always a work day. Um, you know, so there, there's, there's no... Um, you know, there's work-life balance to a degree, but but when 
you know, you're up against the clock because either you're funding it yourself or you've got funding from other people. They're, you know, um, trying to raise more money when the market, um, when the market may not be great, um, it'll cost mm -hmm. you. So you're in a foot race to a degree, especially if there's competitors that are already there that you're chasing or that are coming after you if you're the pioneer. Um, the second is messaging and just the constant revision, the tweaking, the tweaking, the tweaking. And so, you know, you may start out over here, but you're really tacking sort of this in-flight course correction um, to get to the, the, the landing strip that you want and um, having something that finally resonates with everybody. And, and again, it's different for every, every market space, but you're, you're generally trying to get there and then fine tune based on the, the, the mm -hmm. customer problem. And then lastly, just, um, you know, again, a lot of this came, you know, uh, this is sort of the experience. And, and, and the other thing that I've learned is that, you know, there's some things you learn that you want to do um, and some things that you learn that you don't want to take away or don't want to do or want to do differently. And in this instance, um, you know, for me, building the team and getting the right people, um, you know, just placing value on people was something that I gleaned as something that was going to be important to me. And, um, you know, it's been probably at the center of where, um, you know, sort of what I hold dear to, to business, which is great, get, get great people, um, make sure there's a fit when you're interviewing them and, you know, make sure that you're able to, to resource them and, and give them the, the tools and, um, and time they need. Um, because if you do that, it makes your life a lot easier as the, as the leader of that organization. So if I'm not mistaken, that experience really influenced where you went next. Uh, after three years at Locke, you left the position as director of marketing and business development and moved into a role uh, as entrepreneur in residence at ATDC at Georgia Tech. And then uh, you also returned to ATDC for a second stint just a couple of years later. So I'm guessing that part of what drew you to this role is realizing that you really wanted to invest in and grow the people side of things. But how did you know you were ready to, to mentor other young entrepreneurs and to move into a position like this? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I was, I don't know if I could say I knew I was ready. I just think it, it I've sort of, it's, it's just flowed. Um, and I wish I could say that it's been, you know, supremely intentional, but I think, um, I've just been hanging around the hoop and sometimes the ball lands and, you know, it, it, it rebounds off the, uh, off the goal and, and it ends up in your hands and you react to it and you can either, you know, pass it to someone else or you can, you know, just lay it up and take the, take the point. But, but the point for uh, kind of making there is, is that, um, you know, I was, I sort of found my niche um, in the sense that we were helping to build the, the Atlanta and Georgia technology ecosystem. So, you know, around that same time, we had started the Atlanta CEO Council and Venture Atlanta was birthed inside of that. And then we ultimately spun it out. You know, we were involved with Ty and, and a lot of the other things that were going on. And ATDC was sort of, I call it the halfway house for entrepreneurship in the sense that, you know, it's the place where you sort of pop your head in and, and hang out while you're trying to marinate what's work, what you're working on next. And that's where the ATDC comes in, which is um, it's always been the place that we reconnect with um, when we're trying to figure out where we want to go to next. And so, um, so that's that. So it seems that you did come up with an idea so that this was a, uh, a very uh, flavorful time of marinating, so yeah. to speak, because you then stepped out uh, and in 2009, you launched Control Freak, which is a global gaming community and manufacturer of performance gaming controls and peripherals. And you served as president and CEO until it was acquired by a steel series in 2020. Uh, and then you became the managing partner at FBLH Venture Partners. So how were you able to make this pivot? How did you know that this idea had marinated long enough and that it was time to work again on uh, your own ventures? And uh, do you have any plans of uh, going back to just more of a coaching role or are you able to do that now through your BLH work? Yeah, so, um, so, so we, I'll back up just one step. Um, so this is 08. So 08, um, just got married. Um, you know, we had a, a, a small business in between there that was in the building construction space that obviously didn't go as great as it needed to go in 08 when uh, the world was imploding. Um, so, you know, we got married, 
had a company, didn't have a company, still married. Um, and then um, what had happened was that my, my now business partner was getting his MBA at Emory. And so um, he, happened, he and I happened to know each other through the building construction world. He's, a, he's in the construction business. And um, you know, two friends had just introduced us. And so um, they'd introduced us because um, the air defense business was acquired by Motorola. So married company, no company, Motorola acquires air defense. I get some a little bit of money to start investing. And um, Billy's at Emory, you know, doing his you know schoolwork, but also investing and running a multi, you know, several thousand person construction company. And you know, the 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 colleague that introduced us said, Hey, Billy, you're probably not good at this investing stuff. Ashish's got a little bit more experience in you know the technology world. Maybe you guys ought to team up. And so what happened in that time frame was 08, early 09. Um, you know, we basically said, hey, why don't we start investing together? Billy, you're the big check. Ashish, you're the sort of, you're the day-to-day hands on, 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 on the wheel. And the intent was actually for me to do the BLH stuff, you know, kind of as the primary. And the control freak nugget of an idea was really a side project. And so for the last call it 12 or 13 years, I've really had two jobs. I've been running BLH and tandem to having the control freak business, which was a side project that then outgrew the 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 other side of it. Um, and so now, you know, today we're working on BLH sort of version two, but the primary BLH that we had was, um, you know, we're basically making direct investments. And so we have over 60 companies in that portfolio today. And um, you know, at the same time, we were building Control Freak. And in a lot of ways, having both together was really great for us because you know, an entrepreneur would come to see me to, to raise capital. Well, they would walk through my marketing department and my creative department and my product development department and my sales department, and then end up in my BLH office where I was the CEO. And so they saw all the activity and all the metrics on the wall and all the, 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 the common elements that we as a operating business, a control freak, and then as an investor would have to know and understand. And so they weren't talk. I was more them than me at that point in time. And so when we had that connection, it was the, the sale was done. If I had to, you know, if I wanted to get into a deal, and so it was, it was really fun and, and exciting to have an entrepreneur walk through and have them just understand that um, they were coming to see another entrepreneur or um, you know business leader, not somebody that was trying to deploy capital. So. That's actually, it strikes me as a pretty uncommon situation, frankly, that, uh, that somebody seeking capital sees uh, the person as the source of that capital in that optic and, and really knows that they understand every stage of, of the process of getting them where they want to go. I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more about BLH now and the work you're doing and how that experience with Control Freak maybe continues to inform and empower that work. Yeah, um, so hands down at, at BLH, we are, you know, we don't have outside capital. So first and foremost, it's still Billy and I as the, you know, as the balance sheet. Um, you know, we don't wanna manage money for other people, you know, and we are, we're looking for founders. We are, um, you know, we're both founders and operators ourselves. So, you know, we're looking at, you know, things like Google Analytics, he's looking at, you know, uh, construction backlog. And so, um, so that's, that's first and foremost. I think the second piece of it is, um, you know, we, we, we want to end up with a relationship with our entrepreneurs. And while, while we are not trying to run their companies, we want to be able to, to be leaned on for um, experience and for um, problem solving. And, and it, it just lends itself very well to, to the type of community that we are, one have been part of, and then the type of community that we continue to cultivate with our founders and, and, and operators. And so, um, so for us, um, the portfolio in a lot of ways, and if you look at it, you know, spanning cybersecurity companies. So, you know, we're not going to get in there and run a cybersecurity company. I'm not going to be deploying any kind of, you know, zero day code or anything. Um, but we know customers. And so we've been in this town for a long time and we've got places and people that our entrepreneurs can go and see. On the SaaS software side, you know, we had Control Freak that was our operating company day to day. So, you know, somebody that was coming in to, to 
sell, you know, to, to pitch us on software. Well, I could bring in my VP of marketing that could say, listen, that's software, we can use that, let's try it out. And so, and then, um, you know, the last piece of it is e-commerce is another thread that we invest with at VLH. Well, we were in that business. And so the metrics and components of uh, an entrepreneur that was coming in to pitch us, we were looking at the same things every day. So I could disposition a company pretty quickly based on, you know, hey, this guy understands or this gal doesn't understand or vice versa and say, you know what, probably going to pass. And we weren't there to waste anybody's time. So we'd say no really quickly and, um, and then take us a little bit longer for the, the right yes. But um, it would just, it just helped us to one help the other hand in hand. So I want to pick up on this theme of really knowing customers and being in this town for a long time. I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about the unique contributions that BLH is making to this Atlanta innovation and entrepreneurship ecosystem. Yeah. So, so I think um, if I was to say one thing, I think it's persistence, right? We have, we're, we've been around. Um, we're, we're not, um, you know, for better or for worse, we're not really chest thumpy kind of, Hey, this is what we're doing. I'm not, we're not looking for press. And in that sense, we're a little bit more under, under, um, under the radar, um, but we're involved. And so from, from my perspective, um, we, we like to show up. I've probably been showing up a little bit less these last two years, but, um, you know, we, we've been active and involved. And so there's, there's very few organizations that we don't have some touch point with. Um, we also have hypopotamus, which, you know, again, it's something that, you know, while, while I was running control freak, um, I, I missed the community piece of it. And so having, having two jobs was, was, uh, enough, um, we decided that, um, you know what, having the publication, um, which was, it started out as a co-working space that we funded for entrepreneurs and companies like CallRail and, and several others sort of kind of hung their hat there in the basement of the Biltmore for a, a, a little bit. Um, once the co-working business took off, I was like, well, free rent doesn't really make sense when they can go do this elsewhere. Um, why don't we just cover the technology community and use our resources that way? And so, so our, our sort of commitment to the community was doing things like Hypopotamus, which is there to cover the innovation ecosystem. And so we did that with the bent towards making sure that the companies that were doing great things got the, got the press they needed to. And uh, we continue to do that today. So as someone who really knows the ecosystem and has been here for some time, as you say, just you know, keeping a, a finger on the pulse of all of these different parts of that ecosystem rather than being you know, kind of more press-driven and chest-thumpy, um, you know, as, as so many people are, um, I wonder if um, you could reflect a bit on that ecosystem because a theme that, that comes up often uh, with many local entrepreneurs is that Atlanta is a leader in so many sectors and markets that it has developed something of a brand identity crisis or it can sometimes have one and that it, it often rarely gets the credit it deserves in any one uh, sector or market. And I'm curious what you uh, as a serial entrepreneur in tech see as some of the other really defining features of this ecosystem. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because, you know, we had, you know, we, um, we had the opposite issue, you know, call it maybe 10 years ago when I remember being in meetings with, you know, the leadership in the community and it was, Atlanta is not known as a technology hub. It's not known as an innovation, you know, in innovation arena for, you know, broadly speaking, and we sat around and we were like, all right, what do we do well? Well, we do cybersecurity, we do supply chain logistics, we do healthcare, we do, um, you know, you know, smart martech, and um, and so what was funny is is that you know we used to say that because we had such a great broadly diverse base of of economic activity from the Home Depots, Deltas, Coke, UPS. You know, we did a lot of stuff very well. Our highs would never be as high as every other market, and our lows would never be as low. Um, fast forward, you know, the identity crisis now is within that innovation ecosystem pocket, where we've got companies that are doing great, and we're like, well, what's our message now? And so um, it's sort of you, you sort of you know, fast forward, and, and you're kind of chuckling a little bit because I'm like, really. 
because um, there's, you know, people are showing up, you know, the money's very portable and these firms are showing up to, to back the truck up to the companies that are, that are doing well here. And I think that, you know, that in itself is, is um, I don't want to say solved the, uh, solved itself, but we used to, we used to fight about, hey, how do we get money to show up here? Our companies are so underfunded. Well, now the local guys are fighting with uh, guys that are showing up from, you know, from other markets to, to dump money on companies that are here. And so, um, you know, problem solved in some ways. Sure. Well, you know, each solution creates new problems. Um, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting is, to your point, maybe so many of these stories got out that we're now starting to be recognized for that diversity. But then the question is, what is the right story to tell? And yeah. importantly, how do we tell it? Because uh, uh, I spoke with Sanjay uh, or Sanjay Parekh as well. And one of the things he mentioned that I thought was really interesting is Atlanta and also Georgia as a whole, these are incredibly decentralized places politically as well. Mm -hmm. um, we have more counties than just about any other state. And we have more entities that are official spokespeople for the activity of those uh, those political areas. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a question around how uh, do we tell the right story and who tells it? And so, um, you know, I'm curious how you're using what's at your disposal to help define that story and get the word out. So you have BLH that can make strategic investments. Yeah. You have hypopotamus, as you mentioned, as a means to build the right narrative. Um, and then you do a great deal of work as a board member and trustee for crucial Atlanta institutions and tech organizations. What, what are the ways that you can leverage all these means at your disposal to, to help tell that right story? And, and what is that story? You know what, it, it's, a, it's a great question. And I think, um, you know, I, I actually thought about that a lot. And I think the sign of a mature market is, is that there is not just one person or, or voice. Um, if you look at places like the Valley or Boston or places that we traditionally look at as the, the you know, kind of the meccas of, of what we do, um, what we realized, and what I realized at least was, is there, there wasn't just one, you know, we used to fight around, you know, well, who's the official blah, blah, blah of whatever it is. Well, it doesn't, I don't think it matters anymore. I think the decentralization of all that stuff is, is what shows that your market has maturity. And either you can be specific to a niche or a, or a market segment, um, or we can collaborate on something like Venture Atlanta, where the entire community comes together, um, both internally and externally. So it's a, it's a, it's a um, I guess, a, a gravi gravitational pull for, for, for the outside community. Um, but, but again, I think the, the world is, is not a place where there's a single message anymore. And, and whether that's good or bad is still to be seen. Um, but but I think um, you've got lots of people talking and, and, and organizations that um, represent uh, the needs of their specific constituents. And again, I'm not speaking politically, but mostly from a technology standpoint, there's places that you can go to. And, you know, I think we've just, you, you got to get smarter about, you know, who you listen to and, and, and what people, what message you're, what's the real message. Um, which is why for us at Hype, it, it, the whole point there isn't to, to, to really um, to, to, to speak editorially. It's mostly to um, really share the message that the company is trying to, uh, to, to, to share with others and do it in a, in a productive and, and constructive way, but not be promotional. And so we're trying to tell the story of the entrepreneur, the, the how, what, why, when, um, and, and let the, the, the reader really decide for themselves the, the takeaway from that. And I think that's, that therein lies the important fact is that we're presenting the facts, not trying to put narrative on top of it that, um, that skews what the facts really are. So one of the things I'd like to do is open this up in a moment to others from the audience to have a chance to ask their questions and you know, help uh, shape the story that we're, we're telling today. One thing I'll note is that throughout this conversation today, you have really stressed that in many ways, the problem and the message are deeply intertwined, that uh, effectively uh, solving 
uh, for a problem is partly a, a matter of really finding that message, tweaking that message, delivering that message, hitting the right audiences. So um, I'm going to sort of uh, give you a chance to queue up uh, a message on the problem that you're seeing today. And you know, one thing I, I would say about entrepreneurs we've spoken with is that they have in common this uh, quality where they're rarely entirely satisfied with the status quo. And they're looking to uh, tell the right stories and, and develop the right solutions and uh, to problems they see. So what is it that uh, you've worked on recently or you're planning to work on that you're really proud of that you think is a real problem that needs to be addressed? Yeah, so, um, so I would say that um, we're starting, call it version two of BLH or call it, you know, sort of the second, second incarnation. And so, um, you know, Billy and I's uh, real sort of thesis in this next sort of next journey or to say it's the same, same people, you know, same money, um, just different mindset um, after, after exiting control freak. You know, how do we go and solve, you know, bigger problems? Now we're not, you know, we're not deploying billions of dollars in capital, but with the dollars that we do have to deploy, how can we actually make an impact in the community, which is why we're going to continue to support hype. And then overall, you know, we'll figure, you know, we're trying to do fewer, larger things. So in our first portfolio or basket of companies, um, you know, they're, they're, the early part was figure out what this venture capital thing was and, you know, come not spray and pray, but just place lots of bets. And then as we matured, we've got, um, we got, you know, more focused and, and realized that there was larger problems. Um, and in version two, we're starting out with an understanding of focus on larger problems and if we can really make an impact and then use the resources of our community. So if you think about all those pockets that we talked about that helped us to understand what we, you know, what we had to offer, whether it was the relationships with the large companies, whether it was access to employers, um, whatnot. Um, how do we actually bring all that together and support the companies that are potentially impactful in this next version of our, our, uh, our thesis? So, it's interesting. Uh, if time allows, I, I'm going to circle back to this question of the places where you're making these local investments. Sort of, uh, in a sense, it flips the question to 2.0. Uh, because initially I was asking what you're trying to solve. And the answer is you're investing in the things that I think other people are trying to solve. But first, I want to raise a question that's coming from the audience. And uh, one of the folks in attendance today is wondering if you could talk a bit more about your family background mm -hmm. and uh, if that inspires uh, or supports your entrepreneurial journey in any way. Yeah, so um, so, so thanks for asking. The um, the the best the, the quickest answer is the answer 100 yes um i didn't know what the word entrepreneur was when i was growing up i just knew i went to my dad's store where they were selling electronics or even before that the flea market where they were selling watches and sunglasses um and then before that the van that he was going door to door selling school bags and umbrellas in, in orlando um out of necessity and so um so so from a family background you know uh, before that, I was born in the UK, my family or my father and, and his family were in Uganda, East Africa, when the country was overthrown by Idi Amin. So, you know, dictator comes in, tosses everybody out, uh, the refugees in different places. So you got families split between India, Africa, or India, UK, and then um, states. And so they'd been starting over, um, you know, started over a couple of times. And so, um, so without really knowing it, um, you know, we we were in the the startup world um, since sort of since birth, um, and then um, from that standpoint, I mean, you know, my my father was successful in that business and was able to afford every for one of his kids at least. And then being in the electronics business at the time of the internet wasn't a great place when you have Amazon and Best Buy and, and all those guys starting up, and so. Um, so I got through the, uh, I, you know, threaded the needle to get through to Emory and um, was able to sort of get to the other side. Um, but I had that in the back of my mind after the whole organic chemistry fiasco. I was like, you know what, I sucked at that. I just need to go figure out how to, how to really sort of find my place. And so um, that's what I focused on doing. And so, but it took a little tacking left to right, but seems to have worked out. 
I will admit that this is the first time I've heard someone's personal uh, entrepreneurship journey include uh, a reference to Idi Amin. Uh, yeah, that, that one was unexpected. You know, there's um, a lot more. There's a lot more. If you look at the hospitality business and and you know uh, those areas, it's there's a ton. There, indeed. Uh, we're speaking with someone recently who owns a chain of uh, hotels, in fact, uh, who had been working on a PhD in history at Michigan State University, had a sing similar moment for his family. Uh, yeah. So, but uh, it's the first on the show. Um, and uh, there's another question that has come in um, from the audience, someone who wants to thank you for being with us and uh, sharing lessons from your experience. Given that you were a person who joined the tech industry pre-bubble, thrived during and after the bubble, how would you compare uh, both the hype and the reality around Web 3.0 to the late 90s slash early 2000s of the internet? Yeah. So, you know, um, the technology community is great at creating hype. And, um, and ultimately the hype gets overhyped and, you know, the bubble pops or you get, you know, Icarus flies a little bit too close to the sun, gets mm -hmm. burned and reality sets in. Um, what I'll say is that um, in each of the two times I've been sort of, I've seen two cycles. Um, and so maybe two plus, I don't know, I'm not sure how to define them, but the fact is in cycle one, when the dot-com bubble blew up, um, there's a lot of baby with bathwater, And so um, what I'll tell you there is that there was great opportunities to, to invest and to, to really sort of take hold of what had been done. So the, the in number one sort of dot-com, the infrastructure had been laid out for the internet. And if you look at the things that were really built on top of that, you know, the e-commerce and the, the services that we use, those are all in place. Um, V2 with sort of blockchain and AI, all that stuff, you know, lots of hype, lots of companies going to get trashed. V3 is going to be the same thing. So if you look at kind of where Web3 and all that stuff ends up, you're going to have some fundamental, structurally significant businesses and opportunities there. Um, there'll be a lot of hype around it. And, and as you're seeing with sort of crypto and all that stuff right now, and then once some of the, the noise gets washed out, you know, you'll start to hear more signal through the noise um, as participants or I call them drive-by entrepreneurs go away. Um, there's people that use, I mean, the, the amount of pitches that I got with, you know, AI, blockchain, crypto, and I'm like, well, what do you do? Well, we do email marketing. Well, God, well, you know, and so once the buzziness goes away, the real guys and gals can operate their businesses. Um, and, and they're, they're doing it. It's just, um, there's just a lot of noise around it. But Web3 stuff will be, it's there. It's just, it's a good marketing term on top of infrastructure that's being laid for this next, um, next gen of what, what, uh, what we'll all use in some point. So we have one more question from the audience before we wrap up, which is, uh, this person's wanted to know, what is your take on pre-product, pre-revenue companies? Uh, working on hard tech and scratching my head about what comes first, the product or the funding. Yeah, so um, from a from a macro standpoint, what's, we love pre-revenue companies because it gives us most it gives us the ability to really help the entrepreneurs sort of focus and 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 really understand if they can get something off the ground. Um, uh, Sorry, I lost this. the the so, so that's one thing. So so what comes first is if you can if you can afford to build it, then you should build it. And so what I what I tell people when they come to see me is, listen, if you're coming to me to ask for money to go and do to quit your job so that you can go do something, then that's not that's not the right way to approach us. Um, we you know look at our money as if it was your own. Um, if you're building software, you should be able to do that in your nights and weekends at this point in time, unless you're building some enterprise scale something or other. Um, the other piece of that is your team. And so if, if you're, you know, get other people around you because there's not, there's never been a one man show that's, that's, I've seen that's been, um, you know, extremely fundable and, and scalable. And so um, the people piece of it is just as important as the market opportunity you're going after. Um, and so, um, so if you're asking the question, uh, what comes first, the product or the funding, I would say if it's a buildable product and you don't, you're not trying to build like a, 
you know, uh, a, you know, particle accelerator or something, um, you know, it'd be the product first. So one more question came in that I just can't resist given sort of the focus of Emory Innovators and your focus on early stage founders. And this is a question from someone who's apparently a freshman uh, asking, what do you think is the best or most effective way for a freshman in college to start their entrepreneurship journey and get involved in the innovation community? Show up. I think it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's really simple. Like 90, 99% of it is showing up and, um, you know, and I'm trying to teach my kids the same thing. I've got a nine-year-old and 11-year-old and, you know, they've got great work ethic, but going the extra mile, um, you know, it's one thing to sort of hey, pick up your belt off the floor and put it on the staircase, but it's another thing to put it, take it from the floor and, and hang it up where it belongs. And so um, I know it sounds really trivial, but doing that work and paying it forward is really important. I think that's one of those things that, that, that sticks with me. Um, you may not have the skill sets to go and do whatever the, the, you know, the, the hard task is just there, but if you, you can figure it out, right. Or you can ask a lot of questions and, and people are willing to make time for people that are showing the, um, the, their ability to, to, to respect other people's time and to, um, and to, uh, be able to do a uh, pay it forward. And so I think that to me is probably the, the easiest way to do it. Um, you know, we get asked about internships all the time, but, you know, the, the firm is really me in a lot of ways. So managing interns is, is difficult. And so, you know, um, but um, there are places where you can show up and, and they have programs that people will be more than happy to, to support, um, you know, support bringing people in. So show up. Uh, well, I'll just say that I appreciate that you ended on very sort of practical uh, and applicable wisdom as somebody who has picked up a lot of belts and socks in recent years. Uh, I think there's a lesson there for, for my kids and my family. I also want to pick up on uh, something you said in your previous answer, which is that one-man shows are rarely scalable. And I really appreciate the time you took today to uh, share your insights with uh, the Emory and Greater Atlanta innovation communities. Uh, and uh, really appreciate um, you know everything that you've uh, that you've all the lessons you've garnered over the years and are willing to share with people. Yep, thanks, and appreciate what you guys are doing. And as an alum, I'm excited about what uh, what Emory has to contribute and with the leadership that you've uh, you provided. So thank you. Excellent. Thank all you. right. Well, we'll stop there. So Ashish, thanks so much for your time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emory Innovators. To hear additional episodes, search Emory Innovators on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.